Welcome. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, but I am going to give a quick walkthrough review just to, to refresh our memory. Uh, before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the sunshine this morning that follows the snow. Um, we're just praying that as people dig out and they, they head into church this morning, that you'll protect them and you'll keep them safe. And that this morning will be pleasing and honoring in your sight. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. By the way, I moved the, uh, the camera over here because I found my tripod with the special camera mounting holder up top. Last week I had it on some books right here. And every time I would be over here and I would stand right here and talk, it was kind of looking up at me. And there were two things about it I didn't like. One is the backdrop had these cords all over the place. So do you notice they're now coiled nice together so they're straight and neat. But more important than that is this camera angle here looking up at me. It basically made my stomach look even larger than it already is. And I did not like that image. So I decided we're going to change that. It's easier to change the camera angle than it is to lose the weight. Right? Oh dear. Well, welcome. And um, just as a quick walkthrough from before, last time we talked about how we got our English Bibles today. And I got the very distinct impression that many of you were, um, were just surprised at the journey from those original manuscripts to our English translations today. I would remind us that one of the challenges to it was that they came from manuscripts that were in fragments. And so you had portions of one. Let's say that this was from, for the sake of argument, it was from chapter one of Matthew, okay? But what was in this text here, where the, the material had rotted away? Well, they would find another manuscript that contained chapter one of Matthew, but it didn't have holes in it here. It had the holes here. And they had hundreds and hundreds of these old manuscripts that they would find. And they would compare them meticulously, and they could piece together to a very high reliability what the originals would have said. Very, very high reliability. And remember that I discussed how most of the debate about original manuscripts and which one are the most reliable is regarding the New Testament. You would think that it would be about the Old Testament because those are older, but the, the copying method that the uh, Hebrew scribes used was so meticulous to the point where even the, let's call them the letters, the characters, were lined up perfectly as in the same number of lines per page and the same number of spaces across per line. And so they could count and double and triple check them. But the, um, in the New Testament, those Greek manuscripts, the copying done by largely Catholic monks, was just not as meticulous. Now that doesn't mean that we have lower reliability as much as that we have more debate about the New Testament. And I think I had shared with you that, by the way, that's what Hebrew looks like. And remember, Hebrew is actually written from this direction. You notice also that there's no breaks in here. If you look at something original in Greek in the original writings, there's no punctuation either. It's just the characters all crammed together. And your eyes would know where to put the punctuations because that's how biblical Greek was written. 
Something I did not mention about last week, by the way, was that for years, until fairly recently, until maybe 200 years ago, the thinking was that the New Testament Greek, they weren't sure what certain words meant because they knew it wasn't, um, it wasn't modern Greek, obviously. They presumed that it was what's called classical Greek, but there were certain words they didn't know what they were. And yet, through the Latin version, they found their way into the English translation, so they came up with a nickname for it. They called it Holy Ghost Greek, because they didn't know what it was. And it was only fairly recently that they realized this, uh, these Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, largely speaking, were written in street Greek, everyday language, the common language of relatively uneducated Greek citizens. And so that gave some minor differences in those manuscripts. But when I talked about this Byzantine family, that these were, we have far more of them, but the earliest ones are only the fifth century. Most of them are the eighth or ninth century. And they are geographically from closer to the location where the originals would have been written. Within this line here, that's where we got the older English translations, including the Geneva Bible, the King James Version. Today's new King James Version comes from this line. A translation called the Modern English Version comes from this line of manuscripts. But almost all the modern translations come from this line, centered in Alexandria. There are far fewer of them, but they are noticeably older. Therefore, they're much closer to the date of the originals. Therefore, they're subject to fewer copies over the years, and therefore less opportunity for error and changes in them. So that's kind of the different views on the original line of, of manuscript. Then there was the Latin version that comes along, say the fourth century, the Roman Catholic Church says, we're Rome, and the official language of Rome is Latin, so let's translate the Bible into Latin. So you had the Old and the New Testament put into Latin, and over the next thousand years or so, nobody spoke Latin anymore. But the church at the time um, said, essentially, too bad. That's what you got us for. We'll tell you what it means, in essentially. The, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is, this is the beginning of John chapter 1. Mm -hmm. Terry took Latin. Okay. <laughs> Then I talked about how there wasn't a bound New Testament. That you know, We had all these manuscripts, but it wasn't like in a book. And I passed out my Greek New Testament last week for everybody to look at, to which Dell is the first one that made the statement that I was half expecting everybody to say, look at it and say, it's Greek to me. <laughs> I expected that he would be the one to say that, by the way. And so, um, at that point, we went on and we talked about how he pieced together the first Greek New Testament in one binding. And that's something we don't typically realize. They were all separate manuscripts, written in separate places and separate locations. Uh, so having it together was something special because all they had was the Latin. And if they wanted to translate it to another language, they were translating from a translation. So does that make sense? The challenge was the Catholic Church said, you can't do that. Nobody needs anything but Latin. But in the early 1500s, 
There was a time period going on called the Renaissance. Last week I accidentally referred to it as the Enlightenment, by the way. The Enlightenment was in the 1700s. Renaissance was the late 1400s and early 1500s, and they started looking at original languages. That was when Martin Luther looks at the original language in the Greek, and he discovers certain differences compared to the Latin, and it changed doctrines that, among other things, started the Protestant Reformation. And I'm going to save that discussion for a few weeks when I'm back to talk about how we got all of our different denominations, because you can trace a lot of it back to national differences and then new understandings based upon new discoveries in manuscripts. So, we talked about these different Textus Receptus lines. There was Erasmus, Theodore Beza came up with one. And I talked about the continuum of Bible translations, how when you're on this end here, word for word, and it's very exacting, but it doesn't make a lot of sense in the new language, okay? If you took a translation from the Greek to English, you would have trouble understanding what's it saying because the words and the grammar doesn't line up. If you're on the other end, you get the ideas, but you miss some of the details. And translations like the New International Version, the NIV, seeks to blend the two. But when you blend the two, you don't capture the strengths of either one. And so that's why I personally recommend using two or three good translations. I will tell you, I tend to use the King James Version, the New Living Translation, and then I'll compare them to either the NIV or the ESV. There are a number of people here who like the New American Standard. I find it to be kind of wooden because it's much more word for word. And I'll give, um, I'll give some examples a little bit later when we talk about the different ways of wording things. But there's a couple of wonderful websites. They're free. And BibleGateway.com, BibleHub.com. And you can take passages and just line them up right next to one another. And you can, on one side of the screen, say, let me see John 3.16, the one everybody knows. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. And the NIV might say, for God loved the world so much that he willingly gave his one and only son instead of his only begotten son. And the, the question will be, is somebody going to make a big, big doctrinal issue over the lack of the use of the term begotten? And some people do, okay? The New Living Translation would say something like this. It would say, God cared so much for his creation that he willingly sacrificed himself by sending his one and only son to pay a price that we could not pay so that all who believe can have everlasting life. The further to this end captures the meaning where we say, okay, I get it, but there might be a few details that over here captures more. Because if you've ever studied another language, you'll understand translation from one language to another just simply isn't exact. And I'm going to put Kim on the spot. Kim lived in Brazil for a while in high school, and you became pretty fluent in Portuguese. Is that right? And so you understand that it's, there's, there, it's just not exact. You know, it's like hot dog is cachorro quente, which is dog hot. Mm-hmm. Classic story that Terry would tell is that when she was in Europe with the Blue Lake International Symphonic Band, 
summer after high school and they're staying in someone's house and she was she and the person who was paired up with her from the band were staying there and the host family was learning English and they would have people come over and kind of say hey come on over and see the American kids it's like you know a tourist attraction and after dinner they they went to say do you want to go for a walk to show them the, the town or at least the neighborhood of the town but what they said is would you like to go make footings because that was the best that they could come up with and Terry and her you know colleague who was with her understood what they were trying to say because there was an awkwardness to it. Do you think we'll see an AI translation in the future? I mean, probably. Probably. The question will be how long before people will trust it. Exactly. Um, artificial. artificial intelligence. The debate with AI, as I understand it, and we're getting into realms of science fiction here is that in the strictest sense, a piece of software can only do what it has been programmed to do. That's why I was thinking okay. it might not be. And so it has certain limits, but the science fiction argument, which is one that has theological overtones, is there a point at which the software starts to become what they call self-aware? You know, is that a legitimate danger? I don't know. I think that it requires a careful effort to avoid the danger. That's the way I would look at it. There was a movie on that premise. Oh, there's been a lot of movies about it. Oh, well, that. There was a much older one back in the early 70s called Colossus, the Forbin Project. They turned over the entire defense of the United States to a computer and made it impenetrable so that it took the human equation out of it and the computer suddenly became aware that Russia had an equivalent and those two wanted to talk and the two of them linked up and it was very apocalyptic. That basically they decided that people are not capable of self-governance so they'll have to protect them from themselves. And, what about HAL? Well, HAL 9000 on 2001, A Space Odyssey, but we're getting into largely fiction now, but the point is that are there elements of that that are a concern? When it comes to Bible translation, there's always a concern but that's why you use multiple versions. And if you're uncomfortable, don't go there. Use a version that works for you. And that's why I say, I myself, I'm kind of a traditionalist. I lean towards the classic translation, as I call it, the King James Version. But there are passages in there I'll look at, and I'll read it, and I'll say, what? <laughs> and I'll read it again, and I'll say, huh? And then I'll go and I'll look at the New Living Translation, and I'll be able to say, oh, okay, now I get it. And then I'll go back and look and see the details, and then at least I have enough knowledge about the original language that I can look at that and see some of the details and specific words as well. So that's a quick refresher. I do want to move on. There were all these other English translations early. This is the guy who they dug up his, the Catholic Church dug up his bones 50 years after he died and burned his bones to send a message, none of this translating into English stuff. And then William Tyndale, Wycliffe and Tyndale are not unknown names at all still today. Tyndale's English translation was identical to like 76% identical to what the King James translators came up with um, 50 years later pretty impressive since they were a whole team 
By the way, did you know that in when the king commissioned the King James Version to be translated, he set up three panels of scholars, one in Oxford, one in Cambridge, and one in Westminster, and they worked pretty much in isolation. And after a few years, when they were ready, they got together to compare how are they doing, and they were almost identical. And that's one of the reasons why the King James people say, see, God divinely had his hand on that, to which I think most of us would say, well, God clearly had his hand on it because he used the translation powerfully for years, but that doesn't mean that he exclusively blessed that version. And the reason is because the King James translators themselves put in the preface that was published with the first version. They said, you know, this isn't perfect. We're not working under inspiration. This is the best we can do based on the manuscripts we have. And they didn't have very many manuscripts. And they had a version of that Textus Receptus that was still undergoing revision. And they used the Latin a lot, including having to translate passages from Latin because they couldn't find any manuscripts in Greek that had those passages in them. And they assumed, well, they, they probably didn't make them up, so therefore we're going to trust the Latin, but we're going to translate it as best as we can. Um, that's why, as time passed, you know, there are other versions, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthew Bible, the Great Bible was this huge thing that they wanted one in every Anglican church. And then the Geneva Bible was not part of that same chain, but it was part of the same original text. This was from Switzerland. And this is the version that the early American settlers brought with them. They didn't like the King James Version because it was too high church. It was too, it had too high a view of the monarchy in their mind. So the, the Puritans, they brought the Geneva Bible to early America, and it was a hundred years or more before the King James Version became commonly accepted, okay? The Bishop's Bible was the one right before the King James Version, and then 1611 is when this one comes out in its first edition. By the way, I failed to mention something last week, that this had multiple reprintings in those first few years, and there's an infamous version from 1618. It was called the Wicked Bible because it left out the word not in one of the commandments. And the commandment said, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> and it was like, oops. So they had to recall those as quickly as they could. But there were some printing errors, and it really wasn't until... 1769 when there was a revision done you know about 150 years after the original release in which you have the king james version that if you have a king james this is the version you almost certainly have even if you have a schofield reference bible that was so well known in the first half of the 20th century in america the notes are schofield's notes but the translation is the 1769 king james version okay I wonder how much one of the original printings from 1611, can you imagine how much that would be worth? Well, they're all in museums now. You can get facsimiles of them. No, I meant, would it be just a touch like An actual original? Well, you bring up an interesting point, because let's take that and go all the way back to the very originals. Why didn't God preserve any of his original actual physical manuscripts? And one of the best answers is that probably that if he had we would worship it. We would turn it into some kind of holy grail. All 
or holy relic, and that wouldn't be healthy. The hundreds of manuscripts you spoke about, they're obviously they're not in good shape. Is it, have they all been accumulated in one place? No. They're scattered every... They're scattered in different places. Um, the Vatican has... The Vatican owns most of that. That's correct. Of the New Testament. Now, the Old Testament, the one that became almost the Holy Grail, was found in 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that was found in these caves. And those are dated to within 100 years of the time of Christ. And uh, in Old Testament things, like in there, among other things, the entire book of Isaiah was in there. And it is, for all practical purposes, identical to what our later copies of Isaiah say. So it that affirms that idea that the Old Testament copies were meticulous in their accuracy. And where are they? I don't know where the um, Dead Sea Scrolls are kept now, but I can tell you that they've all been scanned mm -hmm. and they're all available electronically okay. to look at. Even some manuscripts in which they were rolled up and they were afraid to unroll them because they were afraid they would disintegrate, they were able to electronically unroll them and look at the text on them it's incredible we live in a blessed time when it comes to technology yes um when summer i was getting ready to go into eighth grade when uh, we were in dublin and i saw the book of kells and that dates from around 800 but it's like i think it's just the the gospels the gospels yeah yep. gospels. well we need to move on what so, was it called, Terry? The Book of The Book of Kells. K-E-L-S. Two L's. All right. So the people who are very loyal to the King James Version, above the line, there is some basis behind saying, look, it's been the standard for years. Why would we change it? The original manuscripts were better. That's the Textus Receptus argument. Whether that's true is debatable, but that somebody wants to hold that view, then fine. Use an English Bible translated from that line of text. King James, New King James, Modern English Version. Or the Old Geneva Bible. A lot of people still use that one. Okay? And then there's the translation method. They'll say word for word is better than thought for thought. Um, if you find the meaning in it and it isn't an obstacle for you, fine. These arguments have some merit to them. This is where it kind of falls off the cliff, where you begin to say, well, since 1611, God has blessed only English. I don't see anywhere where it says that he's blessed only English. And the divine re-inspiration. Peter Ruckman, a guy in Florida who just died a few years ago, tried to make the case that he said, look, um, with all the questions about which manuscript line is best, God decided... I guess I'd better re-inspire it, and I'm going to use English this time. But he came to that conclusion with no basis to come to that conclusion. Secondly, it's a very Anglo-centric or an English-centered argument, and Ruckman took that and just ran with it. Um, Peter Ruckman, if you, you, you look on YouTube, you can find him. They used to call him the junkyard dog of preachers. A very insulting man. Something of a potty mouth, even, in his preaching obnoxious he was nutty too. i would um no, he was, you know he's he was somebody that's if somebody like that showed up around here and got involved 
Uh, I would have to go to the board and say, we're gonna have to ask him to leave even to the point of considering a restraining order. That's how dangerous, okay? I did look up the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. And 100,000 fragments are housed in the Shrine of the Book, part of the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm, okay. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you a comparison here, and I'm gonna use a couple of musical excerpts. When you have a piece of music that's written for one set of instruments, and you want to rewrite it so it's playable by another set of instruments, you have to deal with the fact that now you're gonna use instruments that the composer didn't originally use, and you might even have to change keys in order to get it to work, even though the melodies and the harmonies will be the same. And the question becomes, is it the same piece of music? So let's listen to a couple of excerpts. The piece is Festive Overture by the Russian composer Shostakovich. Very well-known pieces for bands. It was originally written for orchestra. It is not as well-known as an orchestra piece. Here's the opening passage of, uh, I can just find this silly thing, there we go. did that okay not quite that fast but we were able to do that fairly well now but when they rewrite it for another setting of instruments including instruments that the original didn't use what was that the original that was well i think well let me hear this to be sure then i can tell okay i didn't hear strings in the yeah i think that was banned
the first note. Let's take this back. Here's the first note in the band version. Here's the first note in the orchestra version. Not the same, is it? But is it? It's a half step lower in one version because that's necessary to work for that combination of instruments. So the question becomes, since it's in a different key, in order to make it work, every single note is different, right? Than the original that was written. So the question becomes, is it the same piece? Translation asks that question. My answer would be, of course it's the same piece. It's the same melody, it's the same chords, it's the same spirit, it's the same impact on you. It's adapted to a new setting because that would not work if you wanted to use that in the original setting. But it's, it's a great example of that. When you musically rewrite something from one set of instruments to another, you have to adapt things in order to make it work. But there are people who use this argument, they will say that they'll, they'll let you, they'll use this example. They'll say, all right, I'm gonna give you a King James version of this passage and you an NIV and you a New Living Translation and you a New American Standard. Let's read John 1 verse 1 together. And you'll read it together and it doesn't quite line up. And they'll play this game. They'll say this, what would you say about it? And people will say, it's different. And then the person who's leading the discussion will, this is where the sleight of hand comes. They'll say, yes, when something is different, it is not the same, they will say. And that's where the charlatans come in and take over because they are wrong. It is the same. The meaning is the same. What they've done is they've had to adapt it to the new setting in order to communicate what it's supposed to say. Because if you follow their same argument, we all have to learn Hebrew and Greek. Otherwise, we can't have God's word. And so there are some, you can tell that I'm kind of intense about this. Some of these people over the years are just, I think they're doing terrible damage to the body of Christ. And the King James onlyists who have lost their mind over it are among the worst offenders. So I'm, I'm pretty uh, <laughs> battle-scarred about that issue. So let's move on here. I'm going to play some video excerpts for you, three of them. And this is from a, a discussion that was held about 30 years ago. They had a panel together hosted by a guy named John Ankerberg, who was a pastor in the Chicago area. And uh, on one side of the room, they have the editors of the NIV, the New American Standard, and the New King James. And on the other side, they have three different gentlemen who are advocates of only use the King James, but they all aren't the same either. They disagree somewhat with one another. And then there's another guy who is primarily a Hebrew and Greek scholar, James White. And so I'm gonna let you hear three short excerpts. The first one is the discussion of inspiration, divine inspiration, which would be the original manuscripts. Inerrancy means that they contain no errors, but then preservation. How did God preserve it over time, particularly through copying and through translation? And it becomes very much the same debate as the musical excerpt. By the way, did my use of the musical excerpt, did you guys get what I'm trying to say with that? 
it, it raises an interesting question, but I have to come back to saying, of course it's the same piece of music. It's just simply adapted because it had to be. Otherwise, you, if you're not an orchestra, you can't play it. But when they rewrote it for band, they had to change the key because it doesn't, the orchestra key doesn't work for band. They took it from G major to A flat major, for those of you that really want to know, um, because flat keys work better for band instruments. All right? Here we are. This is about 30 years ago. Give me a definition, Dan, on inerrancy, inspiration, how the Bible came down to us. How do you define it? I would say that what is inspired is the original autographs. Inspiration is defined by the term that's only used once in the Bible in 2 Timothy 3.16, the word theopnistos, God-breathed. All scripture, or perhaps a better translation is every scripture is God-breathed. It refers to the original autographs. We have copies of those, and insofar as those are accurate representations of the original, they are the words of God. Okay. Any Bible that is generally faithful could be called the Word of God. What do you say to the person that says, but that seems to leave me with this feeling of uncertainty because you're saying it's not absolutely perfect then. What do you say to that person? Uh, I'd, I'd say volumes to them. I think what has happened in American Christianity at the end of the 20th century this. is that we have replaced the pursuit of truth with the pursuit of certainty. The cults are extremely certain about what they believe, but they don't have truth. And that's, that's a, a deceptive thing. In fact, that's post-enlightenment, and uh, it's not really very biblical Christianity to view that. I'd also say before the age of printing, one person sits in a pew, another sits in a pew, they don't have the same manuscripts in front of them. So they don't have certainty. Only Protestants have had to wrestle with this problem. Would you, we, say, would you say that the material that we have in question, that we think by comparing the oldest documents, as we compare those that have come down the pipe, that there's some additions. Even if we say that that is in, in argument, that that is something we have to take a look at, would you say that therefore it has changed the truth, the message of the Bible? No, not at all. That's the amazing uh, fact about preservation. This was something that a Roman Catholic uh, scholar, Richard Simon, argued against Protestants. He said, you have a paper pope. He said, look at all these variants. They changed the text. And so one of them began to give to, to work on it. John Mill worked on this. Uh, J.A. Bengel worked on it. Other strong evangelical conservative Christians began to look at the variants. They said, we don't find any doctrine affected by these variants. So right. what's the problem here? How many manuscripts, texts have come down to us copies for the New Testament? We have approximately 5,400 of them. Okay. Now, in Greek, that is. All right. Let me give the audience an example. I think they can understand that. I'm coming to you, Ken. That is, let's take a verse like John 3, 16. This is not necessarily true or false, but just an example. If I quote, for God so loved the world, he gave his life, God's son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Good old King James. Okay? And we have, uh, would you say, 5,400 manuscripts? 5,400? We don't have that many in John. We have about 2,000 that cover Okay. John. Let's say you've got 2,000 that you're looking at. And of the 2,000, you've got uh, uh, 1,900 of them that have... Uh, just the way I said it, and then you've got the others that are, have a textual variant that say it this way. God so loved the world that he gave his life to God's son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay? Those manuscripts left out the word for. Okay? So, now textual criticism has a way of saying what should be in there for or not. But I'm going to go to the broader question. Does that mean that because we have that variant, that we don't know what John said about for God so loved the world? I don't think so. And I think that's what we're talking about those variants that a lot of times the scholars say not one of them has anything to do that will affect Christian doctrine, right? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. If you have that situation, <clears throat> 
Does it change the meaning if it says, for God so loved the world, as opposed to God so loved the world? Not really. No. I mean, you have to be so concerned and so convinced that it's your job to protect the text. And to a degree, it's all of our job, but at the same time, what happens is that I think some of these people get so hyper on it that they actually have a pretty low view of the power of the Holy Spirit and a rather inflated view of themselves, if I can be rather blunt on that. So let's look at the next excerpt here. Give me a definition, Dan, Oops. on inerrancy, inspiration, how the Bible... There we go. But now, I want to come to this question, and Art, you haven't talked for a while here. Uh, let's get into this. You have the New King James, then you've got NASB, Art, you have, uh, or Ken, you're over here with the NIV, and the guys in the last program said, God basically hasn't given proof that you got the real Bible because he ain't using it. God has used many Bibles. He used the Septuagint as the key to bringing the Old Testament faith to the Gentiles and a bridge to the New Testament. And for years, the Greeks had the whole Bible. That was the Greek translation of the Old God Testament. God used the Vulgate for a thousand years. Which is the Latin version. The Latin version. In fact, I... I read my devotions every other week because I happen to like Latin. It doesn't give me any extra points, but it's a good Bible. And God used the Luther Bible. Geek. Or the German-speaking world. And, and the Geneva. The people who founded America did not use the King James, the Earl. They used the Geneva. They thought the King James was too high church. It said church instead of congregation and bishop instead of overseers. The pilgrims and Puritans of uh, Plymouth Colony didn't use the King James. The foundation of our country was on the Geneva Bible. Wait, no, the foundation of the country was six, uh, was 1776. Well, you're talking 17. about politics. I'm right. talking about spiritual no. base. Right. Everyone who's conservative no. looks back to... The reason I say this, I've got a book on some American history called The Myth of Separation. There are quotes from some of the founding fathers of this country, and they're King James quotes. They're not Geneva. Of course they're King James. They're 1700, but I'm going to the year that they landed in 1620. Right. Right. I mean, I'm not. The I don't men that sat down either. and founded this nation, the men that sat down and, and chose the direction of this country, were not just the Puritans. Oh, they I, were I realize that, but I'm talking about the initial people. This again sets up this false construct that if you only quote from the King James, that's the perfect Bible. If they quote it from the Geneva, it's imperfect. As a matter of fact, there's going to be so much agreement between those two that when they quote it, it may well be the Geneva they're quoting from. But, but the Geneva Bible is based on the traditional text. Right. So that's True. Yeah, well, I have no problem with that, but I am just saying to say that. God was not well represented on the planet until 1611. That is just plain wrong and unhistorical, and I think, hope it's not too crude. Okay, uh, has God used the NIV? Uh, two things, John. First, on, on the issue of use, uh, my files at the NIV Translation Center in Louisville, Texas, uh, which is affiliated with the International Bible Center, my files are replete with testimonial letters from people all over the world testifying as to how they've been brought to Christ, a saving knowledge, a saving faith in Christ through reading the NIV and from Christians all over the world who have been blessed and spiritually taught and matured in their Christian life through using the NIV. Now there's one more, and this one is starting to deal with the so-called missing verses. I don't know if you've ever heard that. The new translations, if you look carefully in certain places, it will jump from a verse 12 to a verse 14. And verse 13 might be down in a footnote, or it might be up in the body of the text, but it will have a footnote next to it. 
and you look down and the footnote will say, this verse has not been found in any manuscript before the eighth century. In other words, it's not in that Alexandrian line of text because they're older, but it is in the more recent line of text. So which one's right? And the debate comes, are you cutting verses out of the Bible because the King James Version and others have them? Or should they have never been there to begin with? And that's an inexact text. And they'll, there's, there's one that I'm going to share with you in a minute from 1 John 5, 7, called the Johannine Comma. And um, actually, let's do that now. Let's just do that now. I'm going to keep one, pass this around. This is a debate that is exactly what I had described there. When they were putting together the Greek New Testament in the 1500s, so it was in one bound edition, okay? Erasmus, that Catholic scholar. And there's this passage in the Latin on 1 John 5, 7. And if you look at the, at the top paragraph here, as that's coming around, look in the top paragraph, it's this passage where it says, and I'm reading from the King James Version here. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. That's verse 5 and verse 6. Now here's verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And verse 8, and there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. But if you look at the newer translations that are in the paragraph below, NIV, New Living Translation, English Standard Version, they don't have that reference that says the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And so the question is, did the newer translations want to cut the Trinity out of the Bible, which is what they've accused? And here's my best understanding of this, is that even the most ardent supporters of using the majority line texts that Erasmus put together that has more manuscripts and came from a closer geographical location but are not as old, even those people admit that the words here about the Trinity are from the notes of a scribe. The Trinity is in many, many, many other places in the Bible. The problem was is that when Erasmus was putting his Greek text together, he couldn't find it in any of the manuscripts that he had, but it was in the Latin version. And the Catholic Church said, too bad, put it in, because that's an important doctrine. And Erasmus said, but was it in the originals? And they said, that's not your place to determine that. And it was, it was just a classic case of, you know, kind of like management versus the worker bee, you know. <clears throat> and what he ended up saying is, you find a Greek manuscript that has it in there, and I'll put it in. And the suspicion is that they created one because they found one from some monastery up in Ireland and said, look, here's one. And he said, you guys pay my salary. I guess, okay, I'll put it in. Now, whether it was in the originals is one debate. But if it wasn't in that one verse, there are many, many, many other places in Scripture where the Trinity is affirmed very openly. So this is an argument of the forest versus the trees. But this is called the, the Johannine comma, or comma Johannian. Um, 
If you look down below, you'll see the King James Version, the NIV, and the ESV are almost identical. And then if you're just curious, there's the Greek beneath it there. Okay? I know, it's Greek to you. Dell isn't here today, but that's what he would say. So I wanted you to see that, and I wanted you to understand there are other places, like for example, let's look up, look up Matthew 17, 21. Okay. There's a number of verses that have this debate about did they change it? Did they take it out? Was it added by a scribe? All of those things. So look up Matthew 17, 21. And let's have a volunteer to read it, but in doing so, tell me which translation you're using, okay? All right, go ahead and read it. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. All right. Who's got another translation? It's not there. It's not there. It's not there. I have the International Children's Bible because I had it for junior church. Is it in there? It's, it's in brackets. It says that kind of spirit comes out only if you use prayer and give up eating. But it's in brackets. Yep. I have the best Bible. Does, <laughs> and that is the debate. For those of you who say it's not there, is it down in a footnote at the bottom of the page? Oh, yes. Okay. And sometimes they'll have it up in the body of the text, but you'll notice a footnote there and down below it will say, this verse is not found in any manuscript before the 8th century or something like that. Stan's Catholic Bible? It's in there. Yeah. Some Greek copies do not contain the Mark text. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is a classic example of that. It does say in here, some, some I-N-U omits verse 21. I don't know what I-N-U stands for. Hmm. International something? Yeah, I'm not sure. I have a footnote. Yes? If I think it's M-I-B. But this kind does not go out. It's a different place. I'm sorry. So... It was interesting when you said, it's not there, and that's where the debate comes from, because people say, it's not there. See, they took it out. <laughs> but what if it was never there to begin with, and it was a notes of a scribe? How can we know? And the bigger question is, in the total concept of things, does it matter? Is there something taught in that verse that's not taught anywhere else in the Bible? Which is probably the bigger question. Now, I remember even one of the people in Gaylord said to me, and this was a person who apologized for it afterwards, but it was what they were raised to say. And that's, they said, no, we're going to have this discussion. I want the whole Bible. Because they were raised to say that. And they apologized to me afterwards because they realized that they were acting like a programmed robot, which is what they were doing. But the thing is that these are the nature of the debates. Bottom line... If it's a translation that doesn't have an agenda, okay, and if it was done by people you know, who are reliable and respectable and knowledgeable, I think you can trust the translation, but don't trust the translation exclusively. Use multiple translations. Don't build an entire understanding on one word of one translation like the Jehovah's Witness translation 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, instead of the Word was God, of 1 John 1. That's the Jehovah's Witness translation. Okay. Now, Stan, you said it's a Catholic Bible. Is that the Douay-Rheims Bible? That's one of the classic Catholic Bibles. It doesn't say. Okay. All right. Well. It says NAB. NAB. Okay. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> but, but the point is, is that those that are based on that Textus Receptus line of manuscripts, in which we have more of them, but they're not as old, but they came from close to the regional area, will have those verses because they were in the Latin. Okay? Those that are based on the older version, of which we have fewer of them, and came from further away geographically, but are much closer to the age of the originals, tend to not have them. New, New American Bible? Okay. Something that I will point out too. Um, I think that you can get too loose with translation when you really get out there with something like a... Um, message? The message. I think that's too far out there, in my opinion. Okay, it takes too many liberties. Its intentions are honorable, but it takes too many liberties. Um, here's another one to be kind of strange sounding, but that's just me. You know the red letter edition Bibles where it has the words of Jesus in red? Yeah, okay, you've got one. There are, that gets misused by people. They'll end up saying, well, the red letter things are more authoritative than the things that aren't the red letters. And they'll try to look, they'll end up bifurcating the gospel in which they say that what Jesus taught is more important than what Peter, or excuse me, what Paul taught. And you end up with this bifurcated gospel. And that's happening in some aspects of, of fundamentalism right now. Yes. An interesting question. Rick has a red letter. And in chapter 8, Verse 11. Of what book? Matthew. 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 Okay. 18, I'm sorry. 18. Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. Uh, it is omitted. Mm -hmm. right. The other part of text is in red. Mine's so, so, Mine's in there. Mine's in there. Are you saying that a portion of the, of the verse is gone? They said the Son of Man came to save, which is lost, was omitted. Oh, okay, yes. That, well, that's another one of the debates. The, and, and the debate is this, not whether or not the Son of Man came to save, right. but whether or not it was in the original. That's right. the debate. There are so many other places in Scripture where it openly says the Son of Man came to save. Look at the different, the different accounts of the same event just in the four Gospels. They vary slightly, don't they? So my question is, would that be in red in another edition? No? It is in mine. Okay. Yeah. Um, there is an attempt that's sometimes made. Sometimes people make have an attempt to do what they call to harmonize those differences, to try to try, try to make the gospels consistent. 
But in doing so, they assume that that means that somehow or another, the Holy Spirit didn't see to it that the accurate words got in there. And we can't do that because the wheels come off the bus if we do that. So it's often said to me like this, that if someone is, um, let's say that you were, if we were in the room here and, you know, Jesus is standing here and he's talking and there's four or five people around him and, you know, John is there and he's listening to this and essentially writing it down, at least afterwards, as the Holy Spirit reminded him of what it was. But the Gospel of Stan gets written, but Stan's over there in the sofa area and he's sort of listening from a distance and he can get the big things, but he doesn't necessarily get all the details. But Stan's writing to a different group of people. Stan's writing to the people who live in Hessel, whereas John's writing to the people who go to First Union Church. Okay? Same message, but maybe not quite all the same details because it's written to a different group of people. So you end up with, you know, yes, was Paul the apostle to the Gentiles? Yes. Was so much of what Jesus saying was to the Jews? Yes. But that doesn't mean they're different gospels. Okay? I think that what happens is that people get so hung up over some tiny little details because it empowers them. And that's where I use the phrase, the wheel comes off the bus on some of the Bible translation stuff. Most of the time, the people that I found that are the most hung up on this stuff are people who have never studied Greek and Hebrew. They find their identity in this. And they've been blowing up churches for 50 years over it. Uh, there's two churches in Gaylord that have been through that a lot. One of them was our former church. When we showed up there, they had just exploded over several things, but in its past, hyper Peter Ruckman King James onlyism is what they were. And when we got there, most of that was gone, but the damage was there. And we spent seven years trying to shepherd people through some of the damage of that. That's why I'm so hung up over this issue myself, because I've seen the damage that it's done. Okay? And yet, I lean towards the King James Version, largely out of tradition, and its poetic beauty, but I admit there are times that it's a little hard to understand. And so other translations that are good translations are useful. So that's the best advice I can give you. Use tools like Bible Gateway and Bible Hub. Use two or three different versions as you compare different passages. Sometimes it's helpful when you're reading to say, you know, during, I'm gonna go through the book of Matthew and I'm gonna go through it in this version. Now, next month, I'm gonna go through it in this version. And I'm going to look for subtle differences and ask why are those differences there. Do they really affect the meaning? Do you discover that the thought for thought helps communicate meaning a little better? Even though the word for word might give you some of the details the thought for thought doesn't give you. So closing question here. Between last week and this week, how many of you learned something you didn't know? Good. Good. And I hope I've at least given you some things to think about. I will admit, this is a big issue to me because I've seen it so misused. So maybe I'm not especially objective about it, but when you've seen it misused, you have more of a passion about it because you've seen how it's damaged the church and how it's damaged people's faith. Sometimes they get afraid that they're not sure that they've got God's word and one day they're gonna stand before God and he's gonna say, 
well, you claim to be saved, but you didn't get saved with the King James Version, so get out of here. Jeez. <laughs> oh, you mean like all-way? Yeah, well, that was one of those things. I don't know if you noticed the King James Version uses the term all-way instead of always. And it's technically correct. In English of that era, all-way referred to at all times, and all-ways referred to in all ways. Our modern versions kind of conflate the two. But is that a significant doctrinal difference? I don't think so. The person got upset at me because on the PowerPoint slides, the software auto-corrected and put the S in. Okay. Yeah. So, but the old, the old version is technically correct there. It's just that it doesn't communicate. Nobody says all way anymore. So it would be better if the translation was updated to say in all ways and solve the problem. Yes? Who decided to do the red letter? Well, the red letter thing was a publisher decision to try to make it stand out more. By the way, did you know the chapter and the verse numbers weren't original either? Did you know when they came in? The 1500s. So have they changed the Bible? Made it easier. They made it easier, but that's not the question. I would say, of course they haven't changed the Bible. But if somebody was going to be a purist, they would say, it wasn't in the originals. God didn't want it there. No, the originals were given in the language of the people at the time, where they didn't use those things. They didn't even have punctuation. Well, Their mind just knew where the punctuation went. In music, they didn't have what we call articulation markings. They didn't have uh, measure lines in the original music. <laughs> yeah, this is all true. This is all true. It's kind of the same thing. All right, I need to get ready to go in and... Put my brain on to do that. I hope this was interesting. You can probably see my own passion about it. And my passion can create my own blinders, too. So pray for me. Next week, you, next two weeks, you'll have uh, your regular format. I'll be back in a few weeks to talk about how we got all the denominations. I don't know if we'll be over here or if you'll be over there, because I don't know if I'm going to use any video or not. So thank you again. Appreciate you coming. Have a good day.